Diverse voices. Unique sound. Not the same old thing. Different, different. This is NOCO FM. Incest, addiction, growing up in a religious cult, and then becoming a professional escort and an activist for women's empowerment and sexual rights. Veronica Monet has not lived an ordinary life, and she is no ordinary woman. Now sober for nearly three decades, Veronica is an internationally acclaimed sexual and spiritual change agent, public author, and is currently a relationships coach, sexologist, and anger management specialist who has appeared on CNN, Fox, and Politically Incorrect, as well as presented at several major universities to share her amazing and important message. Her online platform is The Shame-Free Zone, where individuals can find tools and resources to free themselves from shame and move towards a fuller expression of their own truths and gifts. Veronica joins us on this episode to share her amazing story, deep wisdom, and powerful insight to help move us in the direction of healing and greater fulfillment. I'm happy you could join us for this episode. This is The Spark. I'm your host, Stephanie James. Veronica, thank you so much for joining me. You have such a powerful story. You've overcome so much in your life, from rape and incest to addictions, things that might absolutely unearth someone else. Can you tell us a little bit about this journey and how this journey into becoming an activist for women's empowerment and sexual rights began? Sure. I I think it's important to kind of start at the beginning, which is that I was raised in a really religious home. And um, at the age of 12, I was trying to experience my own spiritual awakening by uh, reading the Bible from cover to cover. And it it didn't it didn't work for me. Um, I was very devout. Uh, at the age of 12, but reading the Bible was kind of a negative experience for me. And then you combine that with the fact that my family of origin, while they were preaching the Bible, on both sides of the family, all my uncles uh, were molesting their kids. My father was molesting me and my sister, uh, and he was also um, abusing my mother. So this hypocrisy was really unpalatable for me and untenable and I had a lot of trauma so instead of going in the direction of religion I ended up going in the direction of drugs and alcohol uh, which isn't that uncommon actually for a lot of addicts they are having kind of a spiritual dilemma and so they turn to the drugs and the alcohol and I'm really glad it was there because I was close to suicide when I was 17 and I had a spiritual experience, but it had nothing to do with religion or the Bible. I was just calling out for help uh, when I was standing at a riverbank thinking about jumping in. And I felt this warm embrace. And I didn't know where it came from or what that was about, but I got the really strong sense that I wasn't alone in the world, that there was um, some other energy or power that did actually care about whether I lived or died. Nevertheless, I went right into those drugs and alcohol with a lot of glee and uh, went to college in psychology. I tutored English on our campus there at Oregon State University. And um, when I came out uh, with that degree, I graduated with honors. I was also very dependent upon alcohol and cigarettes. And I 
got in with some people at my new job. I moved to California and got a job in telecommunications, and there was a lot of cocaine. This was the 80s, and I got severely addicted to cocaine. So that took me down a lot faster than probably just alcoholism would have. Within two years, I was a wreck. I lost my job at the telecommunications firm. I totaled my car. I got a drunk driving arrest. And uh, I was experiencing a lot of domestic violence with my then fiance. So I had another spiritual experience, which was that I had, I had a couple of dreams that really woke me up. And I came out of bed, got to my knees, and I wasn't into praying at this particular stage of my life. And I asked God to get me sober. And that was the day that I got sober. I haven't had a drink or a drug since. It was September 4th of 1985. So I've been clean and sober for several decades. And I'm very grateful for that. I don't uh, take credit for it. I consider it a daily reprieve and a real gift. And part of my contract with being sober is to have a daily conscious contact with my higher power and to also be of service to others. So the political activism really fits in that, and so does my work as a relationship coach. Just helping people is is really part of how I keep myself clean and sober, and it's, it's a deep passion of mine. I got involved early in my sobriety as an activist for the bisexual community. Now, when I first got sober, I was kind of hoping maybe I'd become straight. <laughs> But that wasn't how it worked at all. And um, so I, uh, I wrote for five and a half years for a bisexual magazine. And I was uh, very active in going out to the colleges and speaking about bi-visibility. And somewhere along the line, I met a prostitute who defied every stereotype that I had about the sex industry. This woman was a little older than I very beautiful, very health conscious, not into drugs or alcohol at all, had a husband, had three kids, lived in a beautiful home. I was really stunned. I'd never heard of this kind of a sex worker. And um, I still wasn't buying it, though. I thought she was oppressed and I needed to rescue her. And uh, after hanging out with her for several months, I started thinking, hey, wait a minute, maybe she needs to rescue me. (laughs) (laughs) I was pretty fed up with my corporate jobs at this point. I had had seven years of working in corporate America from everything from um, office manager to a sales representative for a radio station. And everywhere I went, I encountered a lot of me too moments. <laughs> it, was, it was crazy the way that employers thought that they could treat their their female employees in the at this point it would have been 1989. So yeah, she ended up teaching me the ropes, if you will, of high end escorting, and it was astounding to me actually that I, as a honor graduate from Oregon State University, was seven years in corporate America and had been consistently promoted and earned awards on the job, and you know, until I didn't, and my alcoholism took over. I was like this very high-achieving drug addict. <laughs> Just like, I can't be, I can't have a problem if I'm getting all these awards. But 
I had a lot to learn. And I got to tell you, the biggest thing that I learned from her was about my intuition. That had kind of been educated out of me. So it's more feminine wisdom that I had been separated from, from being so immersed in academe and in uh, corporate environs. And um, it was exciting to tap into this part of myself. And it became, for me, initially it was kind of curiosity and excitement, and it became a very committed spiritual path where um, I actually educated myself about sacred sexuality and Tantra, and I brought that to my clients in a way that uh, was very transformative for them and very uplifting for me. So um, my activism continues to this day, Stephanie. I'm not sure how much you want to hear about this. Well, I, I do want to hear about this. I also want to ask you about your decision to go into being an escort. I, I think that one of the important distinctions in this is that you actually brought in your spirituality. This was not a decision that you took lightly. No. I was terrified, Stephanie. I thought, I must be going in the wrong direction here. This is not what a sober life should look like. And surely, my newfound connection with my version of God, there's no way my higher power could accept this. This can't be right. I must have fooled myself. I must be delusional. I've, I've fallen under the spell of this gorgeous woman. Something. I was looking for some explanation. So I did. I went to my knees, I was so desperate for for clarity on a, a daily basis. Like, please wake me up, you know, help me correct my path. I must be doing the wrong thing or entertaining the wrong thoughts here. And I consistently got a green light. I just, it was really against my stereotypes and assumptions. And so with quite a bit of respect and trepidation and a willingness to abandon this trajectory at any point and continuing to pray and to check in with my higher power, I walked carefully into this new world. And uh, I'm really glad that I did. I was a sober, clean and sober escort for 14 years from the fall of 1989 until January 31st of 2004. And um, during that time, during those years, I was married. I co-parented two toddlers to teenhood with my husband. And I, I lived what looked like a, a very middle-class, normal life, except for how I made my money. And the fact that I was absolutely positively a very active uh, public spokesperson for the sex worker rights movement. So from 1991 until 2003, actually, uh, which was after I had, well, just right up to the end of my career, I was all over the place, CNN, Fox News, Bill Maher's Politically Incorrect, the New York Times, speaking out for sex worker rights and trying to, to destigmatize the profession so that people could get a sense of the people there's a, a wide variety of people in the sex industry, just as there are a wide variety of people who choose to get married. So uh, a sex worker rights um, spokesperson. I have so many colleagues that are far more active in it right now than I am, that I, I just don't want to try to claim that territory when there's so much blood, sweat, and tears that they're expending. But it's important work that this particular piece of legislation is meant to make it possible for prostitutes to report their rapes without being arrested. 
which you would think would be kind of a no-brainer if a police officer was given the choice between putting somebody in jail for a consensual sex crime, which is only a misdemeanor and a very small fine, or actually arresting a violent predator and getting them off the streets so that they can't harm people who may or may not be sex workers. You'd think they'd choose the latter, but unfortunately, that's not the case. And so this law is going to change that. I think that's so important because there's this, I think, sometimes belief that certain people share that, well, if, if you're a sex worker, then you may be inviting that kind of sexual behavior from someone. And Can this you, is what, you know, one of the things, if I want to start speaking out about this more, I think, I think the sex worker rights movement needs to have its own Me Too moment. And, and what I mean by that is to really get clear on the fact that when somebody chooses to offer a sexual act for money, they're not choosing to be raped. They're not choosing to be assaulted. And they have not given up their right to say no. The fact that we have a cultural assumption that tends in that direction is part of the enculturated misogyny that applies to all women's bodies. So as long as we continue to hold this view that somehow or another those type of women, whatever we mean by that, any type of woman, if we have a type of woman who deserves to be raped or does not have the right to say no to sex, then we are all going to lose because that right to say no and that absolute protection from rape needs to apply to all women, regardless of what they do professionally or how promiscuous they may have been, or even if they've had sex with that perpetrator in the past. It's absolutely sacred that we start defining the protections against rape and sexual assault on those terms. Important and powerful messages. Absolutely understand your advocacy and the importance, the absolutely serious importance of advocating for sexual workers' rights and being able to charge people for rape. As we're talking about you in this profession, here you are making $15,000 a date. What made you leave the profession at that time in 2004? So it, there's two parts to this answer. One, because I was an outspoken activist who had been on everything from Fox News to CNN to Bill Maher's Politically Incorrect in the New York Times, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, for 14 years in front of the media. I like that. It eventually caught up to me. I got audited by the IRS, which was like no big deal because fortunately the woman who taught me how to do high-end escorting paid her taxes religiously, and so did I. So that wasn't a big deal, but it was still unnerving to have them come to the home and be all suspicious. And then I got arrested for prostitution because of my political activism. There was a group, we were trying to establish uh, these high-end standards for our industry, and we were meeting, and one of our members got arrested, and so they took her computer and found all of our names. So every single one of us went to jail. Also, not a huge deal, but, you know, it was kind of disturbing. It was just I could feel the legal ramifications kind of closing in on me. And I didn't like the feeling of being under the scrutiny of law enforcement. I really was longing to be on the other side of the law so that I could 
rest a little bit more. And this is not uncommon. Um, activists who are trying to change laws also experience burnout. So there was a way in which the activist part of me was feeling kind of burnt out on this level of uh, scrutiny and harassment from law enforcement. I mean, that's yeah. just it. That's the the painful thing that I'm hearing about this is it wasn't even really about your profession. It's like they were arresting you because they wanted to shut down your activism. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. That, 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 what are they going to save some guy at the Mark Hopkins or the Ritz Carlton? I don't think so. Um, <laughs> oh, there's also this other aspect. Now, I got into escorting with prayer. I also got out of it with prayer. And it was just, I've been praying through the whole thing because that's my spiritual path. And I just got a really strong message that I was supposed to write a book and move into my next career. And so I did. And I know that might sound just as uh, superstitious as how I got in, (laughs) but it's how I roll. I, I just, I told my husband, I said, I'm supposed to write a book by the time I'm age 45. I'm 44. I need to sell the house and and will live off of that money while I write my book. That was the plan. Unfortunately, my husband relapsed around drugs and alcohol, so I ended up filing for a divorce from him. And I moved to this little cabin in the woods in uh, the Sierras and um, started living off of my savings and also basically uh, with no income. <laughs> so... How am I going to make this transition into being a relationship coach? I knew I was supposed to coach people because I'd already been doing a lot of that as an escort. I was a mentor, a muse, um, a spiritual guide for a lot of my clients. And, uh, you know, one day I said, wow, I really like this work, but I think I want to do it with my clothes on. (laughs) I'm not trying that. So, um, yeah. That was the prayer, and and I wound up living. I mean, going abandoning a six-figure income was quite a. It was quite an accomplishment. I still feel kind of you know grateful and proud to myself to be able to do that because there's also this stereotype that sex workers are just money hungry and um, superficial, and it's like so not my truth and not the truth of a lot of my sex worker friends. So I wrote my book, Sex Secrets of Escorts, uh, and started touring the U.S. on all these book tours. Had a fabulous book party in San Francisco. The Chronicle was there. We had about 200 people. And I had a torch singer who was singing the song Shameless. Love it. (laughs) Susie Chin Chin is her name. So it was was a lot of fun going into this new um, life. Of course, I was... I was bummed out about the divorce because this was my my soulmate that I'd been with off and on for 30 years. But we made adjustments. We stayed friends. We still got together to celebrate our kids' birthdays and things like that. And I loved the mountains. There was something, like such a beautiful reset. I I call it basically my golden, you know, um, my Walton Pond. That's the word I'm looking for there. Because I just divorced myself from society and the pursuit of money, and really dove into my connection to nature. Did I answer your question? You did. It's so huge because you were so visible in all this, in the public, in media, being this advocate and public speaker, and all of a sudden you just 
talk about huge transformation in your life. You're letting all of that go, letting a marriage go, and then just becoming reliant upon yourself, taking all these external things that possibly could have been feeding you and being on all these platforms and connecting, and then to go from being such a public figure to a private figure and really going to this internal place. You're just communing with nature. You're communing with spirit. It's such a, such a beautiful reset because, I mean, one time um, I, was, I was at the Ritz-Carlton with a client, and um, he suddenly got a call called away because he had to have a meeting with one of a U.S. ambassador. And so he left me at the Ritz-Carlton, all paid for, um, and I got to spend five days there. Al Gore was in the dining room. Sean Penn was sulking in the lobby. I invited my uh, teenage stepdaughter to come join me for a dinner in the dining room downstairs, and that really impressed her, which then made me feel good because I was always looking for some way to impress her. And um, But at the end of those five days at the Ritz-Carlton, I was absolutely miserable. I felt like getting a cigarette and I hadn't smoked for decades. Well, maybe 15 years at that point. So I realized there was some way in which this fame and this fortune could actually be um, really distancing from my spiritual path. And remember, my sobriety has to be, it has to come first. So if, if at any point something feels like it's starting to tip over into ego and into self-aggrandizement or uh, lust for money, I have to step away from it. And, and I'm not going to say that I, I've really gotten to that point, but I was starting to get hints that of these paths. There's this path, you know, I see my clients are so immersed in this competitive world of owning stuff and accumulating stuff and having stuff. And I, I just, there was something really cleansing about walking away from stuff. <laughs> yeah. And so you, so for a year you lived in the mountains? No, eight years. So for eight years you lived in the mountains? Eight years I lived in this little one-room cabin. It was two stories. It was cute. It had naughty wood, pine finish, and brass chandelier and stained glass. But it was also, it was living at the poverty level. And what I loved about this was I, I became really connected to the rhythms of, of the environment. So I would know that it was going to rain or snow and I'd go out and get my firewood or take the dogs for a walk before the rain or the snow. And then all of a sudden, as soon as we'd get inside the cabin, boom, there'd be a downpour. And there was also this roughing it thing that I got to do. So we'd be out of electricity sometimes for five days and I'd have to run everything off of a generator. And I had to uh, do fire prevention for the five acres that I owned, which meant getting out there with a weed eater and clearing the place by hand because I couldn't afford to hire people. I had, when I was an escort, I hired people to do all my work. Now, all of a sudden, as a struggling author and relationship coach, I was having to do everything myself. And that self-reliance that you were talking about, that is a confidence booster. It may not boost your ego, but it certainly boosts your confidence and makes you feel that like you can handle life. I love the, the deep connection that you developed to the earth. Yeah. Like oh, you yeah. said, to the seasons and, and just being in touch with that. 
So you had this very different life than you had been living. And I want to, Veronica, I want to circle back to your book because I, I think it's so interesting. Sex Secrets of Escorts. Can you talk about what was the importance of this book? I wanted to write about the gender differences between men and women and how we can start understanding each other's cultures because I personally don't ascribe to the idea that it's innate or hormonal. Um, sure, there might be some of that, but I think it's really overemphasized. And most of it is a culture. And so, it, you know, I learned male culture. That's what made me such a successful escort. I, I understood them very well and still do. Um, I just did a mixed gender workshop for men and women on Me Too. And at one point I was speaking for the men and this guy was just so excited that I got them, <laughs> that I understood their pain and I could, I could feel it. I can connect with it. So I, that's really what I wanted. But at that time, and this was 2004 when I got the book contract, Penguin wanted me to do a sex manual. So I kind of had to find some way to fit that stuff in there. And that was a little bit challenging. Uh, I really didn't think the world needed another sex manual. And frankly, to this day, I can tell you the best sex manual ever written is Sherry Winston's Anatomy of Women's Arousal. But um, Sex Secrets of Escorts has a lot of hidden gems in it. You know, I don't have to read between the lines. Unfortunately, a lot of my readers do. The message is one of empowering women to be sexual initiators, of being able to take charge in the bedroom instead of just having things done to them. And so I've, a lot of what I'm teaching in the book is female sexual empowerment. And I obviously also had to cover some topics like rape. And what was really astounding to me in 2004 was that the publisher didn't want me to put anything about rape in the book. And I, I almost walked on the contract at that point and was like, no, we're definitely going to talk about rape. So yeah. Yeah. Well, Fortunately, in this Me Too moment, I think we are moving past that, thank God. But uh, at the time, we had not had Me Too yet, and people are still kind of hung up on that. I also uh, talk about the sacred sexual connection and uh, being more connected as women to our, our inner goddess, if you will. So um, that's really important to me. It's just reframing what sex is for women. To this day, I've got clients in their 20s that are still focused on how they can please the man. And I really would like to help women move away from that and start understanding how they can respond to their own desire. How do we move in as women to our own inner sexual goddess? You know what? It's absolutely imperative that you have a solid no, because without a solid no, your yes is meaningless. And that's the book I'm working on right now. I want to teach um, people of all genders, but particularly women, how to have a know that creates intimacy and a heart connection. And this, I believe, again, we're talking about a more feminine wisdom around boundaries. So, you know, asserting boundaries often comes from kind of this masculine model, which is very alienating. It's, it's oriented towards power instead of empowerment. And I think women want to be empowered to create juicy, loving, fun heart connections that are absolutely positively safe. 
it's really important to have the ability to say this no. And frankly, this is something I learned as an escort. You know, there I am, naked with some stranger who may want to do things that I'm not available to do. How do I keep this sexy? How do I keep it fun? How do I keep it loving? How do I keep it connected? How do I help this person feel seen and validated and respected and appreciated and have an absolutely firm no that you may not pass? (laughs) I am so thankful to hear this. I love this because, again, I think there's this myth that an escort would have to say yes to everything. Yeah, I know. (laughs) That is the myth. It's so funny because I got to tell you something. When I was dating and in college, I was having the same experience that a lot of women have of my boundaries being violated. Uh, um, And I was actually uh, date raped twice, too. So this comes from the the school of hard knocks. And as an escort, I was amazed that I actually got to be more pushy, more uh, emphatic, more stern. It was just like the part of me that wasn't a pushover was so welcome and rewarded. The more outspoken and firm I got with my boundaries, the higher rate I could charge. <laughs> so, the kink or what, but I'm, I'm just saying that my, my path was actually that I was much more revered respected and I don't know, sometimes even worshiped as an escort than I ever was as a college co-ed dating. So as an empowered woman, that actually sounds like it brought something to the power of those exchanges as you were an escort. And it also helped enlarge my view of men. So yes, a lot of men can be incredibly selfish and pushy and looking for ways to violate boundaries. But I also saw that even those guys, even the ones that I would consider kind of misbehaving little boys, could have an appreciation for very clear boundaries. That that actually creates safety for everybody. Hey friends, this is Charles with NOCO FM, the podcast network and streaming radio station dedicated to creating diverse shows just like this one and the numerous others that we help produce. We hope you'll consider becoming a supporter on Patreon, which helps us pay our hosts, produce more shows, and allows us to give back to nonprofits in Northern Colorado. Not only do you become part of our community, but giving also gets you access to an incredible selection of exclusive content from all of our creators, starting at just $2 a month. To get started now, just visit noco.fm slash patron and sign up. Once again, that's n-o-c-o dot f-m slash patron. Hope you have a fantastic start to 2019. We've got some big things coming your way. Now, back to the show. If it's done in a way that there's enthusiasm for the things that are available, the things that are not off the table, that can be a really inviting, joyful experience for everybody. 
you know, part of what I'm teaching is about taking it away from the thing you're not available for and taking it to the thing that you do want to do. And that's based on an assumption that you actually want to interact with this person. So what I'm teaching here is not geared towards how to fight off a rapist. I don't think that I could have ever used this with the three people that have raped me. But for people that you are actually wanting to have an ongoing connection with, whether just as friends or as a possible boyfriend or even with your husband, let's say your husband's putting pressure on you to do certain sexual behaviors that you just don't want to do. I mean, I work with uh, women who are married and they're doing sex that they hate. We can't keep doing this to our bodies. We have to make sure that whenever our bodies are engaged tactily, that it is respectful, safe, and loving, and something that we're actually deriving pleasure from. Thank you for saying all that. I think it's so important, and what I'm getting to that you're speaking about, getting in touch with, as we become aware of our boundaries, as you're saying, and aware of our no, then it's like we can experience those deeper spiritual elements of what is our yes. Yes, am absolutely. I, am I hearing that right? Yes, you are. And and also, I'm wanting to honor the fact that a lot of women wind up in situations where they went along with something sexually and didn't really want to do it, but they also didn't want to hurt the guy's feelings because they really like him, or they didn't want him to break up with them, or they kind of felt like, well, I owe my husband because I'm his wife. There's all this stuff that goes on with women of where they're just putting other people before themselves. And what I want to do is reorient that, like, no, put yourself first, and you will be more present with the people that you want to be there, show up for. You'll be more present, more joyful, more loving, more sensual, more engaged, and and everybody's going to benefit from that. And as um, we're truly present, that's when we're in touch with our spiritual selves. Yeah, yeah. That's when yeah. that can really come out, it sounds like, and be just this incredible, deeper connection with our partners. Yeah, I want to help women become more bold and less frightened, you know, this energy that's kind of like, oh, uh, I want to avoid this. How do I get out of this? And so I want to change that to this really bold, uh, no, but how about this instead? This leads me to your wonderful platform, your podcast and your platform online, which is the Shame Free Zone. You're alluding to the shame that we can feel, I think, when we say yes, when we really didn't want to do something sexually, or we we feel compromised in some way because you know, so many women trying to save the relationship or not cause waves. And yes. with that, at times can come this deep sense of shame. And whether it's from things we've experienced in our past, like incest or rape, or maybe even being really promiscuous, you provide a platform where people can come and talk about these things and and share their secrets. Our secrets make us sick. Yes. And yes. That saying in AA too, which is, uh, you're only as sick as your secrets. So that definitely, <laughs> I mean, we're speaking the same language here. So as people can begin to share their secrets with you, they're alleviating some of this shame. Tell us a little bit about what the shame-free zone is all about. Well, I model what I teach. Right now I'm working with someone who's got anger issues. And yesterday I was just telling that person that I only teach things that I've learned myself. So not out of a book, through real life. 
I want my clients and my subscribers to benefit from years of learning from my own journey. And because I have overcome so many things, I mean, I, I used to not have vaginal orgasms. I do now. I used to not be multiply orgasmic. I am now. That's quite a journey for an incest and rape survivor. I want to share that with people. I want them to understand the path that I took because probably there are things in my journey that are going to work for them too. Not everything, but quite a bit of it is something that would help everybody. And the same goes with having boundaries of healing from things that I might have been ashamed of as a child. Certainly growing up as an incest survivor, I thought that it was my fault. And I was very ashamed of my family. And to, to be able to carry that with so much joy in my heart, without any shame, I just, I want to share that with people. There is a definite way to get to being free of shame. And a lot of it has to do with exactly what Brene Brown says, which is that empathy has to start for ourselves. If we have empathy for ourselves, we enlarge our capacity to have empathy for others. But it's also, there's another aspect that Brene Brown doesn't talk about, which I do teach, which is taking responsibility and making amends. So I use what I've learned from the 12-step programs, and I've been through a lot of them, to help my clients also take responsibility for whatever harm they've created in a way that isn't uh, regretting the past or wishing to shut the door on it. It's just, it is. You did, you made a mistake clean it up, and move on. And I think that's a prescription for moving out of this Me Too moment, too. It really disturbs me that we're just slinging shame back and forth. Oh, first the women felt ashamed because of what had happened to them. Now the men are feeling ashamed because of what they did. And I would imagine that we've needed to have all those stages culturally, but I think it's really time for us to mature that movement into a shame-free zone where we can have discussions about how we're going to understand each other's perspective, how each of us is going to take responsibility for our behavior, whatever it may be. I mean, seriously, I just got in touch with some of my female entitlement, which is that I think that I can touch people without permission. Now, I don't touch them sexually, but I think I can touch them on their arm or maybe offer a hug to an adult. And I, I realized that that actually is a privilege that a lot of men do not have. So I'd love for us to start having these conversations about how we're going to start empowering each other without the shame. And I'm really committed to bringing that to this Me Too moment. So the shame-free zone is about a much bigger agenda than that. It's really just for anybody who is feeling like they are uh, being weighed down by shame. They can come extirpate that with me, free themselves of that. I've got this saying, your secret is safe with me. And I have been keeping uh, some pretty big secrets for decades. So I've got a lot of practice. But it's also really about evolving our culture to a place where all of us can be more transparent and take more responsibility for our bad behavior. You see, you can't actually change a bad behavior if you are being weighed down by shame. Shame causes free perpetration. I, I'd like to see less perpetration and more freedom. You know, last year I had Harriet Lerner on the show, mm -hmm. and she spoke about her, her book was around the art of apology. Mm 
It was, it was, why can't you say I'm sorry? And Mm -hmm. it really spoke to what you're talking about, which is owning, number one, the mistakes that we've made. And it's not about shaming ourselves. It's about when there's an opportunity to make amends, when we own our behavior and then can say to the other person, you know, I fully own this and I am sorry for the things that I have done that have hurt you. And I know that it was hurtful doing like this full amends. And then that's what becomes transformative. And like you said, then we're able to have empathy for ourselves. And we can also empathize with how our behavior or what we said impacted the other person. And true healing is able to happen through that. And I think I think it's for me, it's very important to nuance the difference between an apology and an amends because when I was growing up, everybody apologized and then they just meant they could do it again. Uh, and somehow you're supposed to forgive them and trust them and let them do it again. So what I like about the amends process, as I understand it, is that we come to the person that we've uh, harmed and really let them uh, get that we understand their pain. We give them an opportunity to fully speak their pain too. Um, which, you know, can be kind of challenging. If somebody just wants to say, I'm sorry, and hopefully it's all over with, that's not it. You need to listen to your victim's pain. Give them an opportunity to be hurt. And um, and then take an active step to actually right the wrong. If you stole something, you restore what you stole. You pay people back if you owe them money. And when it comes to psychic wounds, emotional wounds, we have something called a living amends that means you just never do it again. Well, how do you do that? You can't just make a resolution. You can't just say, oh, well, I'm never going to do that again. You, you have to understand why you did it. And you have to take definite, concrete steps to move yourself away from those behaviors. So, for instance, I used to have an anger management issue. And that sometimes led to violent behavior on my part. Well, apologizing is not going to change anything. I actually had to go get the therapy and the coaching that I needed in order to shift that behavior. So, and that is an amends. That's when you actually change yourself. So for the men who have sexually perpetrated, I'm sorry, it's not enough. They're going to have to actually say, I've got a problem and I'm getting help. And let us know what that help is. And then I think to actually give their victims the opportunity to share with them how they have impacted their lives, maybe derailed their careers, hugely important. And of course, for some situations, it's going to require, I mean, you know, if their Me Too moment was rape, they need to go to jail. That's an amends too. Well, and that's part what we were just talking about. When that's truly accepting your behavior and your responsibility for your behavior, and it's doing something about it. It's not just speaking it, it's also correcting the behavior, and sometimes that may be punitive but doing whatever is necessary. Yeah, absolutely. So maybe as we move forward, it becomes a We Too movement. Oh, yes, I would love that. We Too. (laughs) Instead of just Me Too, that there's some collectiveness in that. Definitely. So as we're wrapping up, I so deeply appreciate everything you shared, Veronica, today. And I'm curious, what is the essential message that you want to leave listeners with today? Oh, more than anything, no matter what you've done and no matter what has been done to you, you can change your life for the better today. There's concrete steps that you can take. And it's wonderful. We have to move towards self-love and self-acceptance. 
But those are just words. So we have to get into action. And those actions may vary depending on what circumstances we're dealing with and who we are. But to actually take those actions is a huge vote that you matter. Thank you. And how would someone get a hold of you? The best way is just to go to theshamefreezone.com. They can also send me an email, veronica at theshamefreezone.com. And I think those are probably the two best ways. You can, you can contact me anonymously there. You can subscribe to my email. And if you do, you'll get a beautiful 10,000-word full-color ebook plus access to my podcast. And I just love to hear from you, whatever's going on for you. And I love it that today is the day that someone can start letting go of shame, starting to heal, and sharing this wonderful journey. Veronica shared such an amazingly powerful story with us that no matter what we have been through, no matter what adversity we have faced, we can continue to heal and evolve. Having had such a powerful public career, I was really touched by the deep journey that she went on individually when she lived in the mountains and did the inner work that has continued to feed her life today. She reminds us of the importance of having true empathy first for ourselves, cultivating that empathy so we can work on healing our own shame. No matter what our story is, no matter what we've been through, to start creating some room within us to develop the empathy that will then become like a healing balm within us. And as we heal ourselves, then we're able to extend that empathy to others. I loved her essential message that it's today that we can start this healing journey. It's never too late. Today is the day that your healing can begin, right here and right now. Remember, The Spark is your show too. If you have questions, feedback on the show, or if you're going through something and need a little help, we'd love to hear from you. Continue the conversation with us at our website, thesparkpod.com, and on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. New episodes of The Spark air Wednesdays at 7 p.m. Mountain. To make sure you don't miss an episode, subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher Radio, or wherever you get your podcasts. The show is not a substitute for professional care by a doctor or other qualified medical professional and should not be considered medical advice. If you're having a mental or physical health crisis, please seek treatment immediately. The Spark is produced by NOCO Media Limited, which is solely responsible for its content. Thanks again for listening. This has been The Spark, igniting your best life. I'm Stephanie James.
This has been a production of NOCO FM.